to The Commercial Disco, the only show dedicated to exploring the great stories and people driving Australia's unique innovation and tech landscape. Now over to your host, James Riley. Hello and welcome to The uh, Commercial Disco. I'm James Riley from Innovation Oz. I'm talking today to John Paul Siritovich, who's the Group Chief Executive at Squiz. Hey, JP, how are you? Yeah, James, really well. Okay, look, um, I've known JP over a fairly long period now, certainly since we've launched Innovation Oz, and I've sort of tracked Squiz. I'm not sure how you describe yourselves these days. You're a digital transformation specialist. You're a digital experience platform in lots of ways. You've certainly got product services, and we'll go through some of that. Founded in 1998, I guess as the dot-com boom was really taking off first time around. And uh, you started in CMS, so Content Management Systems, in 1998. And it's really hard to remember what 1998 even looked like. Yeah, it was very different back then. So um, I think people were starting to use the web to communicate with each other. But the websites back then were pretty simple, very basic pages. And I don't know if you remember those horrible animated GIFs that would move around. But the issue that we found at the time and the opportunity that I think really founded the principle of the organisation was that as people were creating this online content, they were reliant on other people doing the work for them. And we saw an opportunity to say, if we could give organisations tools to let them update their own websites and manage this new medium to communicate with people themselves, then that was something that we would want to do and create a lot of value. And that created a content management system, a tool that let people update their own websites. Okay, and you've expanded on that theme over the years with lots of different products and services, one of which Funnelback is a search-based product that originally, if I remember rightly, came out of the CSIRO. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, so Funnelback exactly is that. It is a search tool. does a few other things than just search. It's technology that was developed by the CSIRO, and we acquired that technology along with the team, which was really important. They had some really world-class expertise and added that to the offering. So Obviously, if you think back to 1998, the sort of websites that were built, they were small. These days, the sorts of things you build digitally are substantially more sophisticated. If you build something for a large organisation, a big government department or a university or someone like that, there's a lot of content. And making it easy to discover meaningful content, search is an important part of that. But as I said a second ago, it drives a whole range of other things, which depending on how this conversation goes, we might explore that. Yeah, look, I definitely want to circle back to the Funnelback experience just because, you know, search is so fundamental, but also because of the, you know, the collaboration with CSIRO and then ultimately the acquisition. It's kind of the, the great white whale of um, industry policy success. Uh, look, before I do, though, why don't just very basically, how's business? What happened to you in 2020 and what's the trajectory look like now? Yeah, so overall business is good, right? So, but it's not easy. I think is the other way to add to it. And part of the reason why it's uh, it's not easy is because 2020 was so disruptive. There was so much change that occurred. I think we didn't make life much easier for ourselves either because we decided to make a substantial change in terms of the structure of the business to help us be able to grow faster in the US. So not only did we have COVID, which makes traveling around between offices and communicating a lot harder, we're obviously trying to really change the way we operate to facilitate the way we'd grow and part of that, part of that change, which sort of kicked off just before 2020 hit, is for the first time in in Squiz's evolution, we actually brought on a new partner. So we're an Australian company, Australian grown, 
and we've managed to to build that organisation just really by self-investment and growth. But we decided it was time for a step change and brought on an investor into the business. And that sort of kicked off some of the change that we wanted. Okay. And look, just to, to check it off, I think you've got 13 offices. You were saying you're in all state capitals in Australia and Canberra. Uh, you're also in New Zealand and Poland. You've got offices in London, Edinburgh, New York, Seattle. Correct. You got it. Okay. So, I mean, was that an expansion based on, I mean, I know you've had representative offices all over the place for a while. Sorry, I should mention 400 employees or thereabouts right now also. So was there an expansion that followed that investment or is that the expansion goals were slightly stymied by the disruption of 2020? Right. So that investment that we're talking about, those offices existed before we brought on this additional partner. Most of our effort has been focused on product development lately. We've added more capability to our core product offering. So I might go back to the way you position Squiz at the beginning. You were saying your digital experience, your product, where does it actually fit? So Squiz as an organisation helps organisation build digital experiences. We help them build those digital experiences and more, more importantly, we help them build digital services So we help organizations serve their customers through the digital channel using a tool set we create. So it's software we build here in Australia, which we call a digital experience platform. We also have a range of professional services to help with the implementation of that software. So sometimes people will choose to do that work themselves or use another organization to do the implementation. But one of the things that distinguishes Squiz is our capability to support people in the rollout so they get a complete offering, a complete solution. Okay, look, just before we leave that kind of you know, organisational, structural conversation, managing the business from Australia in a time when you can't get jump on a plane, what's, yep. you know, what's that look like? And the management of, correct me if I'm wrong, I think the management of Squiz has been slightly devolved anyway. So, so what does it look like now? It's definitely harder. Like, so I think culture is a really important part of Squiz in the way that we operate. And that's good because uh, I think that strong culture and people liking each other helped us through a period where you couldn't really invest in it in the same way when you could get together face-to-face and and work things through. Communication in some ways improved in the short term. So they improved because it kind of leveled the playing field for everyone, didn't matter where they were. If you're communicating digitally, it was easy to get together. In some ways, that was also tiring because it meant everyone expected everyone to be available regardless of time zones. And obviously, with that level of distribution, there's a lot of time zones to, to cover. That created its own challenges. What I have found as a challenge over the last year as things have evolved is that you really proactively have to make an effort to invest in in creating uh, that human connection. And it's very hard to do that only through digital channels. It needs to be balanced with, you know, obviously in, in-person channels too. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how these things play out over the long term. As, uh, you know, you've been leading a company that's deeply involved in digital transformations and digital experiences. so. You must have a view on the future of work now. You've pointed out a couple of practical challenges, but equally, the pace of digital transformation has really accelerated. So what are, how are you preparing and how are you like, taking advantage of some of, those, some of those changes? Yeah, right. So you mentioned future of work. I think it's important to recognise that different models can work for different organisations. So some organisations will make a lot of the experience and the culture and the way they operate. We see that, for example, in some of our customers, higher education customers. The experience of what it's like to be at the universities has always been an important part of of their proposition. And they have to try to work out how do you reinvent that or do you just wait it out before that, that occurs. 
there are other organisations that probably work better in an entirely distributed environment. So you need a mix. In Squiz's case, we believe in a blend. So we want people to have face-to-face access for some of the week and also be able to have some control of the way that they operate for some of the week as well. That blend varies depending on where you are in the world. So obviously, it's not practical to have everyone working together in the Northern Hemisphere. But in the Southern Hemisphere, we're really lucky with the way we're managing COVID here now. Uh, We're really lucky to have much more access to, to working together in the same space. All right. Okay. Let's move on to a policy discussion and uh, a lot to get through. We're, we were talking about people and managing people just now. So why don't we start with skills? Yep. It's difficult to bring people, bring highly skilled people in from outside now. So finding talent for a business like yours would be a perennial problem, I'm sure. So what are you doing now? So it is, right? So finding talent has always been a problem, as you, as you rightly point out, and it's harder. <laughs> so... It's definitely harder. It's because I think there's been a growth in demand for IT full stop, obviously, is, and every organisation is saying we need to digitalise the way we operate. We're now competing not just with other software and technology companies. We're competing against pretty much every organisation that's trying to rapidly increase their digital literacy. And we can't do that by bringing in more people from overseas. So that's made it hard. And that's where you need things like culture to be able to help. We fortunately already had some infrastructure overseas, so we can use that to some degree, but we are proud of the fact that we developed the software here in Australia. We're keen to do that. We see value in teams working together and collaborating in the same environment. So we have no intent of changing that strategy, but it's certainly a challenge that it's so difficult to get access to those people right now. Yeah, look, there wouldn't appear to be any kind of quick fix to that either, does it, based on demand and uh, foreshortened supply. I suspect, I actually suspect the issue may not, it doesn't need to be as difficult as it is right now. I actually think a program that was designed to attract people to relocate to Australia might not be that difficult to pull off. I would imagine Australia looks like a pretty attractive place for many places in the world. And uh, a two-week quarantine isn't such a problem if you're relocating for work for uh, an extended period. I would have thought if there was some sort of structured program to try to encourage that, it would be relatively straightforward. It would be a great way of bringing in more knowledge and skills into Australia. It could really boost our economy. We've always been challenged by virtue of the fact that there's a tyranny of distance. IT seems like a great way of being able to trade overseas. We've seen a lot of success in the Australian market before. I can't think of a better time to try to, to stimulate this and boost it right now. And, yeah, if there was any way that the government was interested in trying to make that happen, I think it would be a, a tremendously positive thing. Yeah, I think yeah, there's been a, a few, particularly in the tech sector, that have been talking about that. The massive political issue is obviously there's a lot of Australians overseas who haven't managed to get themselves back and that will start to ease as a political problem as more and more people get a vaccine and uh, open up a little bit, I guess. Okay, well, still on skills. When we're talking about software development, like the development and iteration of your product set, certainly with Funnelback and certainly with some of the you know the cloud experience platform and those kinds of products, are they the more difficult people to hire than standard sort of IT service delivery people? I'm thinking product managers and that kind of thing. Absolutely, yes. All roles are difficult, but product managers, definitely. Product marketing, product managers, I mean, those skills are internationally valuable and we do have some successful product companies in Australia now. And so there is a lot of demand for those roles. And then even within organisations, they need those skills too. So yes, there is demand for them. Absolutely. Okay. The R&D tax incentive, given that you are doing your development here in Australia, 
this has never been out of the headlines since we've been publishing. So that's coming up to six years. Where are you up to now? The software industry is now kind of pushing for a separate scheme because it's been so difficult to get that scheme to work for software. Yeah. I think maybe the, the clearest statement that I can make is we've invested tens of millions of dollars in product over the last few years. And we've benefited by substantially less than 1% of that investment amount. So when it comes to considering how the R&D tax incentive is going to impact on product investment strategy and decisions, it's really not a meaningful consideration. We, We can't rely on it when the level of impact is so small. So you're saying you don't spend a lot of time on it or you just you don't spend a lot of time worrying about it? You just get on with the investment? If there was a stronger incentive, we would love it, but it's because it's such a small proportion of impact. It's just not worth our time making any decisions differently from an investment point of view. I think we might take a bit more risk, might be able to go a little bit faster if there was more incentive to do that. And then I think it would also help from one other aspect too, which is there are a lot of reasons why it doesn't make sense to develop software in Australia. So we do it here because we're proud of it and we've uh, established ourselves and had the infrastructure to do it. But there are a lot of things that work against us. For example, just the general taxation environment, a whole range of other aspects of distance access to talent, all these other things can make it challenging. So anything that could work to make it more attractive to stay here and remain headquartered here, I think is a great thing. I'm not pushing for lower tax rates or anything else like that specifically. I'm saying we need to look at the offering holistically to say, what can we do to ensure that that talent, uh, that capability, that sovereign capability stays here and is developed here. And there's lots of ways you could do it. So R&D tax incentive is one, but even procurement policy could be an example of something else that could make a difference. If there was something that encouraged procurement of locally developed software, that would make a big difference. Yeah, look, I was just going to move on to procurement. So uh, let's dive in there. I think today Gartner put out its annual government IT spending numbers in Australia. Governments will spend more than $13 billion on IT software and services. So that's a giant amount of money that could potentially, as you say, be used as some kind of a lever to further industrial policy. Just as a blanket statement, how does the government, let's look at the federal government now and uh, you know, feel free to expand out on that, but how do they perform in that regard as a local supplier of locally developed technology? So we do do some work with government at all levels nationally. We obviously do participate in that market. Some of the way the purchasing decisions operate, they can be somewhat opaque and they're certainly not shy at all about using big international vendors in the way decisions are made. There are various policies that occur. Each state government, the federal government has different policies that talk about encouraging SME participation. In terms of practical impact, when we see decisions being made, it's hard to connect the way that policy is released to the way the decision-making process occurs. So I still feel we're generally required to compete on the same terms as everybody else. And I don't get the impression that that competition is in any way influenced by an SME or any other Australian or anything, any other kind of policy designed to encourage local or small business purchasing. There has been a bit of a push in very recent times around this notion of retained economic benefit rather than looking at SMEs or rather than looking at the size of the company because by focusing on it, SMEs hasn't particularly worked you know, for decades, really. 
So this idea of retained economic benefit, somehow you come up with an algorithm that says, you know, if this company does it, if this work is done here, there are spillovers and multipliers and all that stuff. I love that idea. I'd like to see how that's implemented in procurement. I, I just haven't seen it yet. So when we complete tenders and that sort of work, it's not clear what sort of criteria is being used that would work in that way to ensure that's part of the decision-making process. Maybe it's because it's relatively new. Oh, look, this is, this is literally some other Australian companies I've been talking to trying to work through industry associations to get that philosophical thinking up. I don't know how much headway they've had inside government, but we shall see in the coming months, I suppose. When New South Wales government created a sovereign capability task force, we made a submission along those lines. Yeah, it would seem crazy if at this point in time we weren't encouraging some of those software development skills in this country. Uh, look, we're going to rip along because conscious of time. Look, over the 22 years you've been in business, you've seen a lot of policies come and go. I've got a fairly standard set of questions around, you know, what's been good and what's been bad. So why don't we just drift through those and, and tell me what you've, what you've liked. So what government policies, you know, have been good for your business that you have actively used and it's had a good result? So I think uh, four, five, seven visas and the different sorts of visas were helpful. So we generally didn't overly recruit from people overseas. We always tried to hire people locally. It's easier. But when we couldn't find those skills or when we identified someone with specialist skills that was really valuable to us, that made a big difference. So anything that can help us bring in skill sets, that will make a big difference. We've also in the past found some support from Australian embassies overseas when we've been sending our people overseas to set up infrastructure and offices over there. So that's been useful too in terms of getting our people visas and periods while they do that and then that's that's helped us with our expansion. Is that through like Austrade programs or specifically through the foreign office? No, normally we just speak specifically to the Australian embassy when we're over there. So in the UK, for example, a high commission was particularly helpful. All right, okay, then now let's... Uh... Let's move to the other side of that. Over your time, particular policies that absolutely got in the way. Don't want to see again. So I think the overall policy, maybe not so much. Every now and then there is a decision to standardise on a particular procurement approach. And sometimes those decisions are made in ways that can be somewhat opaque. And as a result, they can have quite wide-ranging impact on the way that we work with our customers and the way things operate. But we've also seen that often those decisions are cyclical. And we've been operating for long enough that it's just part of the world that we operate in. So I'm not making a particular call with regard to that. But on, on one of those decisions, the impact can be sort of multi-year? Absolutely. Oh, absolutely. And, and to the point that, you know, substantial impact on employment of teams and offices and the way we um, operate. But you'll generally have to wait three to five years before that sort of policy runs through. And people realise, okay, well, maybe that wasn't the panacea solution and the market begins to normalise again with other things. So, you know, sometimes we've benefited from those decisions as well. I would prefer a more standards-based approach to decision-making rather than picking specific vendors. I think that would probably help everyone from the point of view of being able to accommodate change and ensuring they're achieving the outcomes that they're looking for. So if you can define the outcomes certain working standards that need to be defined rather than saying, okay, everything's going into this particular vendor's technology stack. I think that can make a, that could make a big difference. Yeah, look, I mean, I guess there's a pretty specific example in the MyGov redevelopment where Deloitte had an original contract and, and used Adobe as, as that technology stack. I mean, is that the kind of thing that you're referring to? Yeah, absolutely. And before that, there was GovCMS as well, right? They are absolutely it. So, 
the selection of the technology for MyGov, for example, that was not something that was, I'm not sure how we would have been able to participate in that as, as a process. Perhaps we, we missed our opportunity, I'm not sure. But that's an example of a pretty substantial thing that will change federal government procurement direction in a space where we specifically operate. So I'd imagine it's the sort of thing that you'd want to invite an organisation like us to participate in. Yeah, so, I mean, my understanding of the original tender for a prototype of that system was a closed tender mm-hmm. with one vendor invited, obviously, that, that's Deloitte, but that's, that's uh, less than a million-dollar prototype has turned into $40 million worth of business, plus a technology decision in Adobe that we can't understand, certainly from the innovation outside when we've approached the Digital Transformation Agency, haven't been able to understand how that technology was made or even who made it, whether it was Deloitte or somebody inside inside the DTA. So, yeah, that was a strange one. Sure. The other thing I would say that um, the 40 million, I won't stay on this one for too long, but that $40 million as a the impact of the technology decision flows through, that $40 million is just the start of a very large commitment, I guess. Absolutely. Every time you select a core platform like that, it's, uh, it is a commitment. Absolutely. You expect to be using that technology for a long time yet, and there are costs that are associated with it. There are a range of platforms that operate in the in the same way, whether you're making a decision around CRM system or anything else like that. Once you've adopted one and standardised on one, you're committed for quite a long time, and it's difficult to change. So it is, it is important that you pick the right one. Okay, look, I'm going to start winding up, JP. Thank you very much for being on uh, the Commercial Disco. Just before I go, I want to just ask you in its broadest sense, how are you feeling about uh, the future? Well, I guess you can talk about you know, what the economy looks like in Australia and then what the economy looks like across the world. And are you optimistic in the short to medium term? Or are you, what's it look like? So short to medium term, I'm cautiously optimistic. There's a lot of stuff that doesn't make sense in the world right now. So <laughs> if I look at a lot of the way the economy is operating and I can still see a bunch of issues, I mentioned higher education as one of the spaces we work in. I look at our customers and the challenges they've got getting access to students. They're they're finding it hard. It's a difficult time for them. And that's going to flow through the economy in some way. Tourism, travel, still difficult. So on one level, I look at a bunch of numbers that are showing the economy operating really well. And then on the other side, I can see that there are some things that aren't that healthy underneath. And it makes me cautious. But on the other side, I can see access to things like capital is a lot easier. I can see the vaccines are rolling out. Businesses have adapted and are using technology to operate. So there is a path forward in that way. And so in our space specifically, in the technology space, I think there are a lot of opportunities. So while I can see concerns on both, I can see negatives, I think at the moment for me in the short to medium term, the positives are outweighing things. So I'm cautiously optimistic. All right, John Paul Siriotovich, thank you for being on our commercial disco today. Terrific. Thanks, James. Good on you. hope you enjoyed this episode of the commercial disco please like subscribe and leave a five-star review wherever you heard us and head on over to our website innovationoz.com to check out our latest news and reviews focused on tech innovation and policy and reach out on our social media to ask any questions or be a guest on the show until the next time this is the commercial disco Wishing you a great week ahead.